Hello and welcome to another episode of the Living with Feeling podcast from the Centre for the History of the Emotions at Queen Mary University of London. My name is Jules Evans and I'm a research fellow at the Centre and I run the Flourishing University Research Project which looks at what universities can do to explore and enhance flourishing in students, faculty and the wider community. So today I am interviewing Gareth Hughes, who is a psychotherapist and research lead for student well-being at the University of Derby. Gareth has been researching uh, and working with student well-being for, um, for around two decades, uh, and he's got a fascinating insight and wealth of experience in what universities can do to support student well-being. Um, Derby is one of the more innovative universities in this area. Now, almost all courses that undergraduates take at Derby have a module in psychoeducation. And as Gareth discusses, different courses have different modules according to the needs of the um, the faculty and the undergraduates. Um, We also discussed topics like why Gareth thinks students now are um, more anxious than they ever have been in, 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 in the previous two decades of his career. We discussed whether ther- therapeutic education was itself part of the problem. Did that kind of education actually make students more vulnerable? We talked about um, transitioning to university and why that's a particularly difficult time, how uh, in Gareth's research he found that more students that most students have clinical levels of distress in their first six weeks of university uh, and what well-being teams can do to help students feel um, more at home in the, in the kind of early weeks of their uh, university life. So it's a really, um, there's so much to learn in, 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 in what Gareth has to say, so I hope you enjoy it uh, and um, do check out our blog, which has uh, the easy-to-remember URL of blogs.history.qmul.ac.uk forward slash flourishing. How can you forget that? Can you introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm Gareth Hughes. Um, I work uh, at the University of Derby principally. Um, so I have I have a number of roles there. But I, I mean, essentially, I'm a psychotherapist. I work one on one with students. So I, that's a that's a chunk of my time. But um, I suppose my main role is um, I'm the research lead for student well-being. So I'm based within our student well-being team and I lead on our kind of research and innovation and trying to find new ways to do things, better ways to do things and trying to understand a bit better what it is that's impacting on the well-being of students and how we can improve it, really. Um, so that's so, my role, generally. So your team is both practical and also doing research. So we're, we're trying to... We're built on a model that we've devised ourselves over the last few years, which is a research practice and teaching model. So we have a teaching arm that I'm part of as well. So the other thing I do is I go into classrooms and I teach. And I say teach deliberately. So they, these are these are well-being-related classes. Um we do we go into a program so we students turn up for class one day and, and i'm there but we do something that's very specifically tailored to their curriculum 
Um, and it's not just about their well-being. It's about their learning, their lifestyle. It, it's about everything, really, that we try and, and, and do that on. Um, so, so it's that model. It's research, practice and teaching and each informing the other. And that's been really valuable. Um, can you give an example of that, of, of, of when you go into, uh, you know, uh, to, 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 to teach within a particular course? Yeah, so if I think about it, when we have this kind of, the, the, the general template is well-being and academic achievement is one of the sessions. So the way that's been shaped for different programs is I go in and I have a conversation with the academics. So for our popular music students, went in and had that conversation, and they were saying that one of the things they were seeing that they were concerned about was this rise in performance anxiety amongst their music, musical students, this, this attempt to be perfect in, in the assessed performance that was causing huge amounts of anxiety. And so we devised between us we took the template of what, what our well-being and academic achievement and we devised between us this thing that looked at anxiety and performance in musicians and we, we list lots of music through it. It starts off with stuff from Woodstock, um, which is always pleasing for me. Um, and, and we go through all of that. And, but when I did that with the business students and I sat down with their academics, what we came up with was a session on emotional intelligence in the workplace. Because right. that fitted neatly into one of their HR modules. We were able to talk about how well-being and emotional intelligence works in terms of workplace performance and then reflect that in terms of how does that work for your well-being as a student. So it, that's how we do it. Got you. Basically. And would these kinds of sessions, which sound um, awesome, would they be part of their module or would they yeah. be something or some kind of voluntary extra? Or So we've experimented with this over the years and what we find is that if it's embedded into a module, it works much better. Right. If it's voluntary, Students generally don't get why it would be helpful, but when they turn up because they have to because it's on a module, afterwards they appreciate how helpful it's been. So it's, it's embedded in as part of a module. And what we've started doing now, I've been working with the business management program, and they have just been, they were rebuilding their, the, the validation for their program. And I, I did some work with them to help them think about well-being in the curriculum. And they have now built into the curriculum specific classes at specific points where we will come in and do stuff that is linked to curriculum and is also about their self-management, their well-being and that kind of stuff. So you don't go into different departments and say, this is the basics which we really want every different subject to include. You more go in and say, what would be, is there stuff we can do around well-being? Yeah. What would be, what are you interested in? What do you think would be helpful? Yeah, what, what are you seeing? What are the problems with your cohort? What's going on there? And all kinds of stuff comes out. So, you know, this thing about the, the passive learning that a lot of our students want to do. Um, no, and, and we know that from a lot of research from colleagues in Finland, the link between the way in which students engage with learning and their well-being is actually really quite important. So helping students to understand that that deep learning actually is, all, is better for their well-being as well as for their academic performance. What so, so you know, different things come out from different programs. And so mm. it's, it's about trying to find what's going to work. We, we learned this by making mistakes along the way and by doing research. But, you know, when we first started doing this, we, we designed our programs. We went in and delivered them with programs who, who wanted us first, so mainly health and education programs, who loved them. And we thought, oh, we've got something brilliant here. It's great. And then accounting and finance asked me to go in. And I really felt like I was sinking because this just was not landing with them. Ah, and, and that I can relate. I've, I've really done thick. well-being talks to, to, uh, to accountants. <laughs> I can relate. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a different language. It's a different worldview. It's a different way of being. And I just mm. hadn't got that in my in my head when I went into the room so that taught me something and and we've learned since then about how you actually go in so you know I don't do the accounting and finance talks it's one of my colleagues who used to be an accountant who goes and does that and she goes in and talks to them about 
the spreadsheets that you use, the computer packages that are out there, using the right tools, and then thinking about how you are a tool within all of that and how you might function and what. And it works. Right. It works really well because she knows how to adapt it to their language and their world. Interesting. Do you now have this kind of um, well-being component? Um, what percentage of Derby's courses now has this kind of well-being component? That's really interesting. We've made a commitment to 100% by 2018. Um, and I would say we're probably on target for that. I don't know what the exact percentage is at the moment because one of the difficulties is the courses are moving around. You know, courses are coming and going a little bit at the moment. Um, mm. So it's a bit difficult to judge where we are exactly with all of that. But I think, you know, it, it's been going up year by year. Um, okay. there, it's interesting, college by college almost, program by program, we've kind of broken in. So there was one college where we weren't really in up until this summer. We're now going to be in there in a very big way. I think we're going to cover every one of their programs in September. So Got you. And yeah, um, for example, I'm, I'm in the history school. I mean, do, um, do, do does Derby have a, a history or literature schools and have you worked with them? Yeah. History is a really interesting one. We're really tentative about history because history are already doing a lot of stuff well. Right. And one of the things I'm a bit worried of is going into somewhere that's already getting it right. Mm. And adding something that you think might be helpful, but actually then diluting down what's working. Mm -hmm. um, so the history program are, are, are they're, I mean, they're a brilliant team. Mm. They've got really high retention rates, really high degree, um, you know, good degree classifications, mm. high levels of satisfaction year on year on year. And when you talk to them about what they're doing through the first few weeks of the mm -hmm. first year, it's really well engineered. Mm. And they're already, you know, they're already say that their first year is about helping students unlearn and do lots of self-reflection. So they're already doing a lot of good stuff anyway. Mm. So we're very tentative about what we're doing. We're talking at the moment to them, but we're really tentative about going in there because it's a program that already functions really well. Right. We don't want to mess it up. Yeah. So it, it's, it's about partly, it's about not making that assumption that we know everything. Mm, 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 you know, because we yeah. don't. Yeah. We don't. So yeah, but when we've worked with other humanities programs, absolutely, yeah. Mm. Um, and it's, it's again, it's about finding that way i mean i think with history i would probably we would probably build something around narrative mm -hmm. and the role of narrative because that's mm -hmm. important in history and for self right 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 interesting yeah. you know some universities are going to be well actually let's let's carry on talking just about about um derby's approach now you also i mean it, what, what do you call this this project of, of, of putting in different well-being modules into different courses does it have a name it, it's, a, it's our psychoeducational work. That's right. it. We, we, we're the, we have a psychoeducation team. Yeah. Um, although we all do other things. So, yeah. And do you do, I mean, you also do um, talks and workshops, for example, in Freshers' Week and or in the first yeah. term as well? So a lot of this stuff lands in Freshers' Week. So a lot of it's aimed at Freshers. So the first two weeks, basically me and my colleagues, that's what we're doing nonstop. We're going from classroom to classroom, delivering to Freshers. Um, in their, uh, but getting, in, their, in their different courses. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In courses. Absolutely. Yeah. Because we know, I mean, our external research on our own research shows that when you do those big lecture theatre, whole faculty together things, students just feel quite alienated by that. It doesn't land with them as well. Um, so in program, small groups, it's also a chance for them to do some more work together, get to know each other a little bit more. Um, and it, it, it alters feel. And the, the first couple of weeks, it's very much about feel. We're very much working on helping them feel different, feel more positive, feel more... Con There's a lot of imposter syndrome in universities like Derby. Um, so helping them feel like, no, you belong here. You right. know, you're here for a reason. Mm -hmm. um, 
and helping them recognize and understand a lot of that. Um, Small groups meaning how big? We normally got 25, 30 is, is really at, at, at the maximum work. It's, it, it, once you go over 30, it stops working quite as well. You're starting to go into more lecturing style at that point. And we can do that. I mean, I've done lecture theaters of this stuff because, you know, our business school will have 200 students. So I, we, it's designed to work in a lecture theater for 200 students. Mm. Um, so we can do that when we can make that work and that works fine. Um, but I think I, ideally, you know, groups of 25 are about right. But, I mean, how many undergrads does Derby have? We take about 3,500 each year. So on camp this is on-campus full-time undergraduates. So it's a, hu it's a huge amount of work. If you're talking about doing yeah. groups of 30 or so, yeah. and you and your team all in, yeah. in two weeks, is that, is, is that what we're talking about? No, we don't, we don't get them all in two weeks. So what yeah. we say, we, one of the things we're trying to encourage programmes to do is to think about the first year as a year's worth of induction, not to try and do it all in the first week. Right. So no, this this goes on right throughout the whole of the first year. Got you. Um, the heaviest load will be in the first couple of weeks because lots of programmes want to do it then, and but the, it's not all of them. And can you tell me about the um, Love Your Mind initiative? So Love Your Mind was the original umbrella that a lot of stuff fell under. Um, that was so that in, would include would have originally included some of the workshops, but it's a, it's a, it's an extension, I guess, of that psychoeducation work. Okay. So we do lots of roadshows. So we just go into each building, each university building where all different programs are, yeah. um, and we have a couple of members of staff mm -hmm. who are there really just to have conversations with students about okay. anything, and we're giving away free porridge, water, food, right. and it's it's general well-being but essentially anything the student wants to come up and talk about and it's in some way an easy access point in some ways it's just a chance for a student to get some advice without ever having to come near a service okay. but it's education again it's, it's about raising education it covers things like leaflets poster campaigns that we do we have um self-help like a bibliotherapy section in our library um some stuff that we do online so it's it's an outreach bit of that psychoeducation really and it's interesting that you say you know a lot of it is about the kind of first term first weeks first year because you've done work on transitions as something yeah. difficult for students. Yes. C can you tell me a bit about that, about your, res your research in that, in that area? I mean, we've done a number of things. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of good literature out there anyway. Um, so some of what I've done is to simply try and pull together what's there and to set it alongside some of the work we've done. We looked at distress rates in students in the first six weeks within our population. And, and you know, more students are... And we're using measures of clinical distress, so you know the things like core, and mm. more students are have clinical levels of distress than not. Generally, is what we're finding. Um, I want to I want to repeat that this year, so we, because there are some things I wanted to just refine with that research. But but I, the, the the average score, I mean, you know, on the core measure, you know, a not to ten is normal feelings, and mm. and above that is clinical levels of distress. And the average student had a clinical level of distress in the first six uh, weeks. In the first six weeks. Now, if you know about the impact that stress and anxiety has on cognitive function, um, and we're asking them to learn a huge amount of new stuff, and we're bombarding them with lots of information, and they're trying to learn a new environment, we're asking them to do a, a job at exactly the wrong time of year because of that. So we looked at that, but there were some other interesting things that came out of that work, one of which was I had, a, I had this neat little hypothesis. We could do this with the student population, and then we could look at the distress levels of those students who had moved from home into university accommodation and those students who were commuting from home and that we would see a difference in distress because the students who had left home would be homesick and that we would be able to then identify what the homesickness level was 
actually what we found was that the stress level was identical. Statistically speaking, it was identical, which was very puzzling. But then I went away and I did some work and I went to a conference in New Zealand and talked to colleagues down there. And they were saying, no, actually, we're seeing the same thing. And our students commute. They're all local. Mm -hmm. Helen Stallman's done an awful lot of good work down in Australia looking at this. And what you actually start to realize is this isn't about the exit necessarily from previous networks, which is what we'd always assumed. There's something about the entry in here that's triggering something. There's th the entry into this new environment is triggering a level of hyperarousal at, at the very least. And so looking back at that, there's um, Emile Zajong's work around mere exposure, which is that, you know, we like the things we know. We get distressed when we're exposed to things we don't know because it's warning us it's potentially dangerous. And until mm -hmm. we know it's not, we're hyperaroused by it. And I looked at that and thought, well, that's a very obvious bit that we're missing from our thinking about transition. And actually, one of the things I'd always known from my own work as a therapist is that homesickness could be very difficult sometimes to get a good response in. But that's because we were always dealing with the exit from. And so I started looking at, well, what happens if I work with students to deal with the entrance into? What if we do some work in kind of guided imagery of thinking about walking around the university feeling safe and feeling confident and feeling good and, and imagining yourself being there enjoying it and actually that dropped the distress levels quite quickly they were then starting to pair the environment with neutral or good experiences rather than scary negative ones uh -huh. so that's kind of where we oh, that my other thought is because i'm a human givens therapist so needs theories are a big part of, of what i would think about is that actually one of the ways of looking at transition is how well can students meet their basic underlying needs in the new environment? And if they can do that quickly, they'll flourish. If they are unable to do that for whatever reason, it might be lack of skill or the environment or whatever, then actually they're going to struggle. And those students then become the ones who are most likely to drop out. How so that leads you to thinking about, well, is this why students from widening participation backgrounds struggle so much at university? Because they're finding an environment which is even more alien than those who are coming from schools that look like universities, where family has already been, where they've maybe mm. been around with their brother or sister. Because actually this is an even more alienating environment for them, and they've maybe got less cultural capital and skill set to mean they can meet their needs in that environment. How would you help them in that instance to meet their needs, like, like belonging, for example, or, or, or social connections? Well, belonging is an interesting one. And I don't think we know enough about belonging and socialization amongst our students. I was at a meeting recently, a UK meeting recently, and one of the things I said is that we don't know how students socialize. We don't know how this happens. Mm -hmm. It's a We just assume it's happening, mm -hmm. but it's a magical thing that we're leaving up to the student union and fit. We mm -hmm. don't know why students, some students find their groups and others don't. We have no idea. There's no research in this area at all. Right. And I think that's a huge gap we really need to look at. Yeah. And if you look at like Cacioppo's work in kind of social neuroscience, looking at the impact again on, on the perception of being lonely. It's not by how many hours you're alone. If you, if you think you're lonely, cognitive function and um, your immune system drop. So you're more susceptible to illness. You're less able to engage with your academic work. But we're just assuming it's going to happen. So yeah. I, I think that's, a, that, that's something the sector's really got to get its head around. Um, in terms of belonging, I think... Basic familiarization exercises really work. Those things about, you know, um, group treasure hunts around campus and things like that. Yeah. But they have a real impact. They're really, they're, yeah. They are useful. But one of the other things that we noticed with our that work on measuring student distress is that when we ask students whether they've been to the university before, so if they've been to an open day or a summer school, those who had had generally lower levels of distress. So I suspected a previous exposure to that environment where you then had a chance to go back to your own environment and absorb it and then come back and find it familiar just makes the whole thing a bit easier. As you're trying to research some of the different uh, 
you know, issues that the student body might face and their different coping mechanisms and so on. How useful are, are measurements, psychometric measurements, um, and what, what kind of things do you measure or do you think uh, universities should be measuring? Um, I, have, I have a mix of thoughts about this because I think, I think measurement is an important thing to do and I think it's an important thing to pay attention to. But I think it's dangerous to look only at that. I think social science, because it had a chip on its shoulder about not being real science, I think, mm-hmm. has attempted to ape real science. And actually, it's more complicated than that. It's too complex to actually be able to measure everything neatly. And that's not saying we shouldn't be measuring at all, but it's to say that we need a better matrix of, um, we need a more complex way of looking at what's going on because what's happening is complex. And, and attempting to isolate out which individual thing is having which impact is really, I was reading a post by Pedro de Brook here um, yesterday on universal design learning for learning. And he was talking about the fact that, you know, you, you know two, two things may work, but added together, you don't know what the impact's going to be. And when mm-hmm. you're trying to do something comprehensive, we don't know what the impact of all of those things working together is, and that's really difficult to measure. So we've got to get better at doing complex work. And I think, particularly in the field of mental health, you know, that the, the priority that's given to RCTs, I think, is a problem. That's not to say that I think RCTs don't have a role, because I think Richard Bentle makes a very useful point when he says that, you know, RCTs are the way you stop imposters getting in the door with dangerous things. But I think we need a better matrix of information. We need, you know, CBT in its RCTs and CBT in the real world, the outcomes are very different. And actually, why give one of those things priority over another? Why not weight them together? So I think it is important, um, certainly within our, our um, psychological wellbeing service, which, which delivers counselling, we use psychometric measures to look at impact of, of the service overall. I think that's important because I think therapy services that aren't doing that are missing a big piece of information that they need. I don't think it's the only thing you should use to measure. I think you've got to do it in context. I think you need to understand the weaknesses of whatever measure you're using so that you can interpret it properly. Mm -hmm. And my worry about these things is that they don't get used as scientific tools with weaknesses. They get used as management tools that are of choice. So that's my concern about them, really, is that they're not being used properly rather than that they exist at all. Right, right, right. They're used to prove that your team is succeeding. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, yeah, to cover to, to to cover your ass, really. Well, yeah, I mean that. I think a lot of places are using it. We we don't use it like that at Derby, but you know, you you know, there's a movement of of two percent in outcomes this year. What's that about? Yeah. Well, it's about statistical fluctuation. That's what yeah. it's about. Yeah, <laughs> you know, don't. It's not a better or worse performance than last year. It's no. just normal statistics. I suppose, but I suppose people say like, how do we know if what we're doing is working? Yeah. And, and, you know, and where we should put our effort and what we should be doing, yes. you know, and I, I suppose universities are trying to figure that out, aren't they? Yeah. And, I, and, and we should be, try- that's exactly what we should be doing. We should be trying to figure that out. But we need to use a, a, a proper matrix of evidence that properly weights and looks at all of this stuff. And also, you've got to be aware of what, what can you realistically do with each intervention that you're, you're attempting. So with our workshop program, do I believe that by going in and doing one hour of workshops, we're going to radically transform the well-being of all of our students? No, of course not. Absolutely not. That's why I said our focus is on can we change how they're feeling in the first few weeks so that they're able to make some different decisions and maybe socialize a little bit better and feel a little bit less like an imposter? 
Now, the evidence suggests we're having that impact, but long term, I wouldn't expect an hour to do that. Mm. But what we have found is whenever we go in and deliver on programs, access to support goes up. Students are more willing to access support afterwards. Right. It also opens up a dialogue with academics. So we've used those workshops to close the gap between our service and our academics, right. which means that academics are then also altering what they're doing on program. And also, you know, they will, they will refer to this and say, you know, when I'm talking to a student and a person in tutorial and they're having problems, I'm able to say, well, remember the session Gareth did back in September. Right. Let's look at that. So it's bridging, so, it's bridging learning and counselling rather yeah. than being separate things. And counselling is where you go when you break down. Exactly, exactly. Mm. And uh, but bridging uh, learning and well-being, I think. Yeah. Because I think one of my other concerns is whilst counselling is vitally important, and I think a lot of universities have cut back counselling in a way which is stupid and potentially dangerous, it's not the only thing. Right. It's not the only response. And we have to be very careful about any argument that says, oh, all we need is more counselling. Do you think a lot of British universities think that at the yes. moment? That there's, there's, I mean, you've been working in this field for how long? since 98 in one capacity or another. Fascinating. So do you think universities are more concerned about student well-being now than when you started out? Or is, it a, is this a perennial concern? Um, no, they're definitely more concerned and they definitely have more reason to be. Something has gone wrong with our young people. And I, I, you know, I can bore you for hours about what I think those things are. But something has definitely happened. And, you know, if we map the number of students who we see through our mental health team who need kind of long term ongoing support, that, that it's not a curve. It's a straight line going up mm. year on year on year. Um, well, I'd love so, to hear your 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 take on that. Well, you know, I mean, obviously, that's a big question. But what are the main things you think that are going on? I think I think that. Well, the first thing it says, it, it's not one thing. And I'm very worried about whenever anyone comes along and says, oh, well, it's this or it's this, because actually I think this is a complex cultural phenomenon. Yeah. It has many roots. Mm. But I think there are, there are, I'll highlight a number, but, but you know, there are many others as well. I think, um, I think there's been a change in parenting. Um, and I think the influence of John Bowlby's work or the self-esteem movement or things like that have all had an impact on this. So, um, you know, the, this idea that the job of a parent is to stop your child ever being distressed because if they're distressed, that's going to come out in some kind of long-term mental health problem somewhere else um, has caused problems because what it means is children aren't left with their own distress when they're young to figure out how to manage it for themselves. You know, you see this thing of two children fall out in school and the parents ring each other up to try and fix it rather than leaving the children to do it for themselves. I think you couple that then with a change in our schooling, which is very exam-focused, very driven by league tables and performance so that learning becomes surface for those students because the mm. only thing that matters is the exam because that's mm. what teachers you know teachers on performance related pay that is only to do with exam results so the entire school system is now no longer about learning no longer about building character or developing it's about passing this exam um i think that is very damaging because we know that surface learning has that impact and we can see this huge rise in perfectionism amongst our young women that's a lot to do with that you have a cultural narrative about going to university to get a good job, which is a lie, just a flat out lie. And the students kind of know that, but by the same token, they still feel they have to go along with it. Why, so is, you, it a, got, why is it a lie? You don't go to university to get a good job next. You go to university to get a better career and a better life, but it's not to get a good job immediately afterwards because it's not a job training scheme. 
That's not what it does. It equips you with all kinds of fantastic skills for the workplace that will enable you to develop a long career. I did a drama degree. It didn't qualify me to do this. So but I words, use my drama degree every day. So the students are all through university thinking about and worrying about their career rather than it being a space where they can kind of ask questions about what do I think about life and what, yeah. what's my, what, what do I want from life? Absolutely. Mm. And that whole narrative about, well, it's to get a job to get you on the job ladder is being driven by people who haven't quite grasped that the job ladder doesn't exist anymore. You know, the star students coming through now will probably be in work for 50 years by the time they retire. Mm. They're not going to have one career. They're going to have three or four or five, maybe two or three of them at the same time. So that requires a whole different level of ability to self-manage, self-reflect, understand, think about the world, think about your place, and think about the impact you want to have on it. But what we want to do is narrow it down to give you CV writing skills. What about, I mean, um, what about things like wider participation, that just more and more people are going to university, um, many people, they're the kind of first, first, first in their family to go to university, so it's just more of a culture change for them? Um, I think that's possible. What was very interesting is that if you look at those countries who are still highly selective, so take Finland, for instance, whose university system is still highly selective, same problems, same rise in mental health rates, same rise in surface learning. This isn't a widening, it's not being caused by widening participation. I think it's an easy out for people to say, well, it's because we're taking in students who shouldn't be here. And is, 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 is that likewise for the question of fees? Fees is an interesting one. I mean, I, I'm... I'm minded to think that actually student debt while they're students is probably having more of an impact on their day-to-day -day mental health. But I think the knowledge that the fees are there is having a, it's having an impact in that it's not giving students the freedom to think and move. So once you've committed to your course in your university, if you then decide, actually, I made a mistake, well, you've made a mistake with an awful lot of money right at the start of your life. Yes. You made at least 9,000, maybe 18,000 worth of mistake. Yeah. So you stick with it. Um, what I mean, one theory I've heard um, from, from someone in my, um, in, my, in my own university, but I, but I hear it from people like Frank Ferradi as well, is that actually the kind of increasing uh, mental health vulnerability of young people is a consequence of things like... Um, you know, social and emotional aspects of, of, of learning classes in schools. It's, it's, it's a consequence of... Yeah, the dangerous rise of therapeutic education. Exactly, the kind of Catherine Eccleston um, idea that actually the more we, we kind of make young people psychologically literate, the more that they kind of know that all the things that can go wrong with the mind. Yeah. So why do we ever spend any money on um, health prevention programs in terms of cancer and heart disease? And, you know, why has everyone stopped smoking? Mm. Did, did making everyone aware of the dangers of smoking make them more likely to go out and smoke? And actually, if you just go back and look at this, because when you read those kinds of books, I often think they're, they're built more like conspiracy theories rather than genuine scientific theories. They're cherry picking. For this to be the case... You would have to be able to say that, okay, so this rise, it can be entirely explained by these classes existing in school. Mm. Therefore, all of these children will have to have had these classes in school. Actually, then go and look at how many schools are running these classes. I, and it's I not agree. that many. I agree. And I, I think, I, I, I completely agree that I think they totally overestimate 
the impact of, you know, it might be an hour a week, but often classes, schools don't even do that hour a week, or it's just no, like a... No, I've got kids in school, they haven't been in any of those classes yet. Yeah. You know, they're in secondary school, one's just finished a GCSEs, they haven't been in any classes like that. I suspect if you, if you ask most students, how many of these classes did you do when you are in school, the mm. vast majority will say none. So if you're talking about the cultural impact of schools, I think the focus on exams is something felt in every class all through yes. the day. That exactly. is, I think, a much bigger thing than these occasional ad hoc uh, things yeah. which, which, which are not a big no. cultural impact. And I think, I think where, where those things have maybe had an impact, as I say, is on things like the culture around parenting. Yeah. You know, the idea that, you know, I'm sure when, when we were young, we went out of the house first thing in the morning and in the summertime and disappeared mm. for the day, came back for lunch, disappeared again, came back. Well, now we would view that as neglectful of our parents to allow children to do that. But while we were out, we were developing all kinds of skill and all kinds of resilience mm. that our children are now not getting the opportunity to do. Mm. Therefore, when they get to 18 and something goes wrong, they have no personal fallback mechanism. There is no process for them to go through to help them pick themselves back up again. So mm. it's just about the fact we've, we've lost what childhood's about. Childhood is supposed to be about developing for adulthood. It's not mm. supposed to be perfect. I mean, what, um, what kind of, and how does it manifest? Are there particular issues that you see affecting uh, students across the body, uh, or across the student body? I'd say, I mean, anxiety is the thing that I think is most prevalent. It's That's definitely the thing we see most. And when I talk to colleagues at other universities, they would say, absolutely, it's That's, the thing they're seeing most. That's what I've heard at my university as well, more yeah. than depression. Yeah, oh, vastly more than depression. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Anxiety far more than anything else. Mm. Yeah. 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 And you talk about perfectionism as well. Is, is yeah. that a particular issue too? Like the kind of, either it's perfect or I, I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to switch mm. off. Yeah, and we've done, I did some research with sixth form teachers um, last year, um, mm. and, and very much they were saying this rise, you know, they've, they've got good students who complete a piece of work that's really good, that would get a good mark, but they don't hand it in because they don't perceive it as being perfect. Yeah. And then that filtering through into university, you know, that idea of, of you know, useful failure, mm. making mistakes so to learn from, well, that's just mm. not tolerable because right. if you make a mistake, you're a failure. If you fail, then life's over. Mm. And I, whenever I do work with students, one of the things I specialize in is, is kind of academic anxieties, like exam anxiety. Right. And I do that CBT, you know, that um, if that, then what technique, you know, the way you say, so yeah. tell me what's the worst case scenario. Sure. In stoicism, it's called... Uh... Uh, premeditatio malorum, meditation of bad things. Like, what's the worst okay. that can happen? Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. And then going, so, and then if that, then what? If that, then what? And mm. when you do that and you walk them all the way along, the, the if that, then what, what they get to is, well, I'll, I'll fail my module, I'll fail my course, I won't get a degree, I won't get a job, I won't get a house, basically my life's going to be over. <laughs> and I bring them back to, yeah, but can't you repeat your exam on your course? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So actually, where we're going is any mistake, anything going wrong means my life is over. Yeah. Well, you would feel anxious if you thought that. Right, right. Because <laughs> that's terrifying. Mm, yeah. And, and again, I think that goes back to, you know, you can't afford to fail your GCSEs. They're the most important exams. You've been, right back into primary school, I mean, I've had arguments with teachers here, mm. you know, telling their children, these exams are really important for you, the SATs exams. Well, no, they're not. SATs exams don't follow children. They're a measurement of the school. Mm. But in order to get the children motivated, they're telling them that the SATs matter to them. Um, what uh, helps have you found particularly i mean so i mean are, are there particular kinds of interventions that you think are, that you found you know you feel have had the, the most impact that other universities um, could try 
So let me just separate this out a minute. Let me just talk about therapy first of all, and then I'll talk more generally in a bit. Mm -hmm. In terms of therapeutically, I think students need really active therapy. It needs to be very active. It needs to be brief. It needs to move quickly. They haven't got 12 weeks. You know, they've got to be starting to turn around quite quickly. So I'm, I'm a human given therapist, which makes some of this quite easy for me. Um, but I, I, I'm very much taken by the work of people like Scott Miller and Donald Meikenbaum, who are now looking at, so what is it that marks out good therapists from those um, who are you know, doing less well? And this idea that actually what, what we as therapists need to be able to do is rather than that mm -hmm. old thing of, well, you can choose a CBT practitioner or a person-centered practitioner or a psychodynamic practitioner. We as therapists need to be able to do all of that it's not because why would we expect the student to be able to figure out what kind of therapy they need? Right. And when they come into the room, we should be able to work with them to figure out what is it that they need. Mm -hmm. And then we adapt and deliver whatever it is they need that's going to move them most quickly. Now, that's demanding for us as practitioners, but I genuinely think that's where we need to be going. And for those of us working in universities, that means we have to be able to talk about learning and study and academic performance and their subjects because those are a huge part of their life. And if you can't talk about that in detail, you can't talk to them about being a student and then mm. you can't talk to them about their existence. So I think therapeutically, you have to be able to do all of that. You've got to be able to talk to them about their lifestyle, about traditional things. You've got to have techniques from everywhere um, and you've got to be able to talk to them about learning and academic performance. Right. So therapeutically, I think that's what works. And, mm -hmm. and ver we very much seen that at Derby and we've moved our model to, to do that more and more and more. And I would then take that and say, actually, and then when you, whatever you want to do outside of that needs to fit in with that as well. It needs, to connect, it needs to be relevant to their world. It needs to be relevant to where they're already standing. Mm. And it has to put them back in control. And that's the key element of this. But to put them back in control is going to take an active shift and a chunk of education and a chunk of motivation and a bit of movement. And so we're trying to do all of that, really. Okay. Uh, what but it's, it's complicated. It's complex. What about things like, um, I mean, you, you've looked at peer-to-peer -peer support as well. Um, what, what's been your experience with that? Well, a little bit of peer-to-peer -peer support. I mean, it's not, it's not particularly my area of peer-to-peer support, to be honest. Right. Um, my, my, my thoughts on that from what I've looked at and what I've seen is that when, when well-funded, well-supported, well-trained and well-supervised, peer-to-peer support works brilliantly. It's fantastic. But if any of those things are missing, it's a disaster waiting to happen because students who are doing the peer supporting will lose their boundaries. It will start to impact negatively in them. And then you've got, you know, negative mental health spreading mm. rather than being supported and, and, gotcha. and then improved. Gotcha. So okay. I, I think it, well, as long as you've got all of those things in place, it's fantastic. Um, and what about things like um, classes, workshops, lectures? Um, have you got a sense of how, how useful they are? Is that something that universities should be looking at? I, I think so, but I think, again, they have to be relevant to the world the student is in. So I think the way we've, we've learned, the reason we're doing what we're doing is because we've learned that it's what works. Mm. So, and again, that's, that's a tough ask because sometimes, you know, a new program comes along and we're scratching our heads thinking, well, okay, how, do we, how do we adapt to this? How do we get right. into this? But I think it has to speak in their language, not ours. Right. It has to be relevant to their world, not ours. Right. And they have to be able to perceive it as being useful very early on in the session. Got you, got uh, be you. Yeah. Because otherwise you're talking over their heads, yeah. you're there to lecture them about their lives and they don't, yeah. they don't want that, they're not going to welcome that. So, okay. yeah. What, I mean, there's so many different things which will affect uh, a student's well-being. Mm. I mean, it, 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 it's, a, it's such a kind of, it's a kind of a frame through which you can view it pretty much everything about a university, can't you? I think Absolutely. about things like um, 
the university spaces. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, um, are, are there, you know, green spaces or, or, or water? Uh, yeah. Know, quiet places, places of contemplation. Is the library a, a nice reflective place or is it just like, you know, all this kind of thing? Um, yeah. Is, I mean, is, does... does does that mean that, that you know that, uh, that one needs to look at it from the top of the university really and think about how all these things fit together? I think you do. I think one of my frustrations is that we are too quick to start boxing things off in different places, mm. and actually all these things are part of the same phenomenon. Yeah. So the way students approach their learning, the way they get meaning, the mm. way they look after themselves physically, the way they're looking after themselves psychologically and emotionally. They're all part of the same thing. We can't separate these things out. So yeah, the way their learning space is shaped. Does it have sunlight? Do you have windows? Um, are you looking out at a green space? What's student accommodation like? Totally. Can they get to sleep at night? Do they, and, you know, we have a sleeplessness epidemic amongst our students but, that no we, one's we really have, talking we about. We have a caffeine epidemic among our students. Absolutely, and, and a problem with social media and phones mm. being left switched on by their bed but connected mm. to social media all night. And we know that that means you don't sleep properly. Um, social media and the internet, by the way, is another one of the things that I would say is having a negative impact on, on the long-term well-being. It's another one of the reasons we're seeing these problems. Um, so all of that, I mean, you know, uh, Student Minds have just done some work around student accommodation mm. um, and, and basic things that we need to be getting right about student accommodation to support well-being and learning. And one of the mm. things that I keep doing is I keep trying to put that phrase in rather than just well-being, well-being and learning, because mm. they're part of the same thing. Do you think, I mean, does that mean that um, universities should have some kind of uh, team uh, thinking about well-being from from the top and how it filters down to all these things. I mean, for example, at my university, we were talking about. I was talking to uh, someone in the history department who's in charge of like kind of um, student experience, and we were talking about how good Queen Mary is at in, in, in enhancing belonging and a feeling of, of campus life. And you know, he was saying one of the things there's not a bar where uh, bands can play in mm. uh, in Queen Mary. But I mean, who is in charge of that at the university about thinking about those kinds of questions? I mean, yeah, so I, 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 I absolutely. And I think I, I do think it's, it's something that needs to be thought of holistically across the whole institution. But the person who's in the place to do that is the VC. Um, and I think that, you know, we're really lucky at Derby. You know, we've got Kath Mitchell. She's a psychologist. Yeah, she gets this. And you how know, she gets it probably that, better than I do. How important has, has that been to you being able to go to different departments and, 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 and they're not thinking, oh, who are these people bothering us? To an extent, yeah. I mean, I think we've, we've earned our mileage by being, we, we boot camped ourselves and put ourselves through understanding learning much more. You know, we went through and we learned and we went to things and we took some training and we read so that when we go in and talk to our academic colleagues, we can talk in their language. Right. Um, not ours. Again, it's that thing about language is really important. Mm. But we, again, we're talking to their, our colleagues about things that matter to them in their language. Right. Um, that matters. That that shifts ground because if we're coming in talking in different language and pushing different things, then we're always perceived as the the area of the university that wants to make getting a degree easy because we don't want our students to be upset, which is not that's not what we think. It's never what we thought, but that's yeah. been perception of us. Um, so actually, it's it's. Doing the mileage, is, I don't think there's any any substitute for going program to program, team mm. to team, okay. and just having conversations, really. It's yeah. a human thing, I think. Yeah. But, I mean, certainly in terms of being able to influence uh, policy and being able to influence strategy and influence thinking and, and us acquiring a bit more influence around the university, it's been much easier since CAS comes in because mm. 
she already thinks all of those things that we would want her to think she's already in place with a lot of them it's okay. made life much easier okay um last last three questions gary um firstly when you you obviously go to a lot of kind of uh conferences you've you've looked at this um this area for for several years when you look at how british universities are are, are approaching the issue of of, of well-being and we haven't really talked about staff well-being but I don't no. know, is, is that some, are you more looking at student well-being yourself? Well, interestingly, one of the pieces of work, I'm doing a piece of research with a colleague from King's, Nicola Byron, mm. and we're looking at um, the experiences of academics in relation to student mental health. Right. So we've done a multi-site um, qualitative study, and we're yeah. just analysing the transcripts at the moment from that. But I think staff well-being is, is a huge part of this. Again, I don't think you can split these two things out, because if, if a... If a lecturer is mentally unwell, that's going to impact on the experience of our students. Sure, and if they're very shut down to, you know, emotions, they'll include yeah. how they relate to students uh, with emotional problems. Absolutely, absolutely. Is that so, daunting no. for some for some lecturers thinking, "Oh my God, I've got to be emotionally intelligent as as, as well as all the other stuff." Yeah, and I don't think we necessarily have helped our academics make the transitions to thinking about this in some ways across the sector. I mean, we tried to do it at Derby, but it's a, it's a tricky thing to do. Yeah. I think the role of the academic has changed very quickly. And I think lots of academics will say now that they're actually not quite sure what their role is. Mm. Um, and we need to do something about that. We need to help with that because mm. if we don't, it's going to impact on our students as well. I mean, mm. there's a reason for doing it just because it's impacting on the staff. Yeah. Morally, we should just be doing it anyway. But it will also be impacting on our students. Mm. Well, I mean, the, the question I was going to ask is when you look at what universities are doing student well-being, um, do, do you, what do you, what do you think they sh what is the kind of the, the, the thing that they should be doing which they're not at the moment thinking about this differently yeah <laughs> actually it's not about the thing they're doing you can go around conferences and hear about brilliant little ad hoc intervention here and fantastic ad hoc intervention there what I don't hear enough of is the philosophy behind why and how we think this is going to work mm. why you know um, I, I submitted something to a national conference last year um, for one of the, the organizations. And what it came back was, that, look, you know, research and theory is great. But what our uh, members want, really, are practical examples of things they can take away. Yeah. And it was, but how do you know? How do you mm. know if that's going to fit your context? How right. do you know if that would work alongside the other things you're trying to do? Mm. If you haven't got basic philosophy and theory sitting behind the way in which you approach this. Mm. And I think there's an empty theoretical space sitting here. Mm. Um, and actually, one of the things I would say, I mean, we have, we have at Derby, one of the things we did that has become really helpful is we defined what our philosophy was and we defined the key principles by which we were going to act and behave. And everything is guided by that. Can you sum it up? Um, it's tricky. I can give you a flavour for, for, for some of it. I okay. mean, one of the things we did was, first of all, to say that as a service, we are not going to be a reactive behind closed door service. So we believe that we are here for the well-being of all students. Right. Once you define yourself in that way, it changes the nature of your service on its own. Um, we're going to be proactive and collaborative. We work with the, the three wave model, which is you might be familiar from the research. So wave one is all students. So that's the love your mind things and the workshops and stuff like that. We have two of those students who are potentially vulnerable to drop out or becoming ill or whatever. So disabled students, we have specific interventions for them. We have our get ahead program for them to before they come into university. 
are those students who may become vulnerable because something happens to them while they're students. So right. students mugged, for instance. Yeah. And, and we have three are those students who are at risk. So students right. who are at risk to themselves or others right now. And we have we have a, um, a mental health team who are professional mental health professionals trained who can respond to that need. Right. So that that guides then the different elements of what we do. Gotcha. And we try and keep a balance across all three. Okay. And we are, as I say, we're in a research, teaching and practice model so yeah. that all three things are informing each other so that we're evidence based in what we do, not just in terms of what nice say, but our own production of evidence as okay. well. I'm particularly interested in the the element of philosophy being included in this, because yeah. I think it's probably one of the big missing pieces in our conversation here is about how we use philosophy. I mean, mm. you know, as I said to you on, on that email that I sent, you know, Aristotle plays a fair amount of, um, of a role in the discussions that we have in, internally yeah. at Derby. Yeah. Um, and I think actually that things like that are important. Yeah. Important. Yeah. Well, definitely, because I don't have psychology training, obviously, so I'm, I'm often just trying to connect some of these ideas to um to older ideas and 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 like older practices and i suppose it's just to connect it also to this very old tradition in in higher education uh, yeah. to say this isn't something totally new this is this is people have been looking at these kind of things for 2500 years yeah so they're kind of I, to me it's a return to the norm for universities yeah. to be into this kind of stuff I've, I've said for a long time that you know i think a lot of modern psychology is about rediscovering things we used to know yeah um, and had dismissed. But also, yeah. I think, you know, psychology is far more based on philosophy than it would like to admit. Again, back yeah. to that thing of it not wanting to admit it's a social science and wanting to pretend it's a hard science. Yeah. Now, um, w w when we, we, we had a discussion on my, um, about, uh, uh, around a blog post I did comparing what UK universities do to, U to what US universities yeah. do, where, there's, where there seems to be much more of a kind of focus on flourishing within the kind of liberal arts model and things. Uh, and, and you said, but of course, there's a difference in that American education in general is more focused on things like character. Uh, and there's also, you said, a difference is that American universities think of themselves more in loco parentis than, yes. um, than British universities. Yes. Um, is, is that right? Do you, and do you think that then maybe British universities are moving a bit more to that American model then? Yeah, and I think there's a danger in it. Right. Um, I, it would worry me. I mean, in, in America, you're a minor until 21 in most states. So they are treating their students as in local parentis because legally they are. Right. Um, and so you will get curfew times on their halls of residence. Mm. Um, you will have male and female and, you know, male students are not allowed into the female halls of residence after a certain time. Right. You will get that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, which we wouldn't, our, our students wouldn't tolerate. Mm. Quite right. Um but one of my concerns is that one of the other things in terms of our philosophy is that we're not here to plug a gap on our students for three years and then turn them out at the other end. We view this as developmental. The what we want is a student coming with a need at the beginning of their first year, mm -hmm. by the time they leave us, are able to manage that for themselves or that the need is gone. Mm -hmm. So either we help them get rid of it mm. or we help them develop strategies and skills and insight so they can manage it for themselves. Because when they leave us in three years' time, that support's not going to be there. Right, but I, I mean, I, I don't think American universities would necessarily, they would also be aiming for something similar, wouldn't they? Uh, talk to some of our US colleagues. and Well, mm. it, it, I think the theory and the practice diverge a little bit mm. in this. I think you will hear a lot of learner development conversations and a lot of this, one of the differences is that a lot of their student affairs staff will have done a master's in student affairs, which will cover an awful lot of theory of 
personal development and individual development, learner development and those kinds of things. So they'll be more theoretically grounded in what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But I do think that in local parentis thing makes them carry a little bit more. Right. Um, they will view their intervention as being much more about making it okay and making it okay and helping them get on and stay rather than necessarily developing skills. Now, this, now America's a huge country with a massively different you know, network yeah. of universities, so, and so it, and it's so the, very generalized. And the risk you're talking about is, is the risk of, of universities being a bit nannying or meddling and, yeah. and, and not kind of respecting the autonomy of students. and, and their I, I, I think that's yeah. a risk. Yeah, and if we look, if we, what I was talking about earlier on about children not being given the opportunity to develop the skills and the resources, the res internal resilience to respond to things going wrong, mm. if we just step in and keep doing the same thing, it's going to be an ongoing thing then for the rest of their lives. Yeah, the reason I like my work and I'm quite excited about it is I think actually we have an opportunity to change the world here because mm. if we can get them and help them develop those skills while they're with us and develop that resilience and that internal insight and all of the other things mm. so that they go out at the other end able to manage their well-being mm. in balance, they'll take that into the world and that'll then ripple and change the world because these people will go and manage workplaces, they'll go and lead companies eventually, mm. they'll go and be...